Welcome to the 10th episode of Murder, She Don't, the podcast where we watch horror films, because I love them. And I don't. But then we talk about them, because she can talk your ear off. And he doesn't? Today we're doing a double feature for our 10th episode. We're going to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, then the documentary that follows the actor from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Mark Patton, and the documentary is called Scream Queen. Yes. We watched both in one night. We were recording this the night after, but it was interesting to see them one right after another. And rather than do a full rundown of both films like we normally do and talking scene by scene, we're going to go a quick rundown of the, the actual film and then we'll do some talking about the documentary. So Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was released roughly a year after the first one. The first one was a much bigger hit than I think anybody was expecting, and the New Line Cinema got a sequel greenlit immediately and started working on it. I don't know if anybody from the first movie actually worked on the second movie. So tonally, it is an entirely different film. It is something else. It's it's generally a bunch of the horror fans growing up hated this movie. Like, when I was a kid, people hated this one. But... That's partially because of the subtext of the film, which we will get into. Going into it, know that I have not seen any of the other Nightmare on Elm Street. I think I've seen scenes from one of them. Couldn't tell you which one. Somebody had it playing in the background of a Halloween party that I went to when I was in high school. So that is my... I knew who Freddy Krueger was even without seeing any of the movies. But watching the second one, a.k.a. the least loved (laughs) one first, I think is going to inform the watch for the other ones. When we get to them. Weirdly, if that makes sense. Sensitivities uh, in the movie and in the documentary, there's a lot of language, especially in the documentary, a lot of instances of slurs for gays on screen and spoken a little bit. In the movie, there are there's some nudity gore which has come to be expected but not a crazy amount there's a couple scenes that are pretty gory but not a crazy amount um, and the nudity isn't what you would expect i don't think we saw boobs yeah there, there's a male butt <laughs> yes and there's, there's also, a couple of male butts actually yeah and there's some innuendo innuendo guy walking around in his underwear a lot of crotch shots and there is there is the death of, death of a bird in the I'm sorry. It's so. It is not funny. I I apologize for my laughter to all bird lovers out there. It it's just it's. We'll get to it. <laughs> if you haven't seen these movies, I definitely 100% recommend seeing them. Both of them, with the caveat that Nightmare on Elm Street Two is not a great movie. Nightmare on Elm Street Two was directed by Jack Shoulder, although it's not spelled Shoulder, it's Saholder, um, and written by David. Chaskin? Chaskin? Chaskin, I Chaskin, which will come up more in the documentary. Wes Craven didn't have anything to do with the movie, and it stars Mark Patton, who the documentary focuses on. Now, the movie takes place five years after the first movie. Jesse has just moved into the house that was Nancy's from the first movie. We don't know how long he's been there. Everything else is unpacked. His room seems to be the last one to pack. And he's been having nightmares. So it opens up with one of his nightmares. You don't know that it's a nightmare until 
like a good bit of the ways into it. You do get to see Robert England without his Freddy makeup on, which was always uh, creepy for me as a kid. Cause as like, the bus driver. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a person under that that's not really Freddy. So he's having these Freddy nightmares. He's not really sure what it's all about yet. He's got a girlfriend at school. He's got some uh, a mean coach that messes with him. Baseball team, right? Yeah, he's on. I think he's on the baseball team. Or if he's not on the baseball team, they just play baseball during gym period. I'm not real sure. Jesse has a girlfriend. Well, Lisa. kind of a girlfriend at first, Lisa, that they seem to kind of like each other, although maybe he doesn't like her quite as much as she likes him. There's a whole thing about this movie about where everybody, everything gets warm and everybody starts sweating, and it's a lot of baby oil. sweaty male <laughs> figures in the movie, which, once again, is something that becomes a theme of the f- film. So, he's... In the house on Elm Street, somebody at school tells him, man, your dad is a chump. For buying that house. Tells him the history of the house. That the girl who lived there went crazy after she saw her boyfriend across the street get murdered. Again, I have no recollection of the first one because I've never seen the first one. So all of this stuff is great exposition to, I guess, tie in the story from the first one? Well, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure that the people who made this movie had saw the first one. I know Mark Patton in the documentary had said he hadn't seen the movie until he got cast in it. (laughs) So his girlfriend comes over. They find a diary from the person who lived before, and they go to investigate at the factory that Freddy Krueger worked at. Had killed children. That's where he had taken the children to kill them, I believe. It just gets worse from there. So his nightmares get worse. They do a lot of blending of, you don't know if this is actually happening or this is a dream. And it goes back and forth. Well, it turns out his nightmare started becoming true. Freddy left his glove. He finds it. He puts it on. He goes and tries to get a beer from a gay bar. His coach, the one who kind of bullies him at school, stops him from getting the beer takes him back to the school, makes him run laps. And I'm like, this is an elaborate dream. Like, this is so weird because I've never known a teacher to punish a kid by taking them back to the school after hours and making them run laps in the gym, makes them hit the showers. It's not necessarily like it, it just seemed odd to me. So I was like, oh, this is another elaborate nightmare. And then there's like all of these balls come like basketballs, tennis balls, medicine balls start falling off the shelves and basically start attacking the coach gets him into the shower ties him up with a like nobody's there it's just you see it move to tie him up to it and this is where you see grown men butt and there's a suggestive scene there with a little bit of towel whipping to the point of drawing blood And then gets the iconic four slashes down his back and is basically murdered in the shower room with Jesse there. Jesse is then later found naked, roaming the highway, Mm -hmm. and is returned to his place of residence by the cops. So that's the first thing, our first murder, and you're thinking, oh, this is a dream. He was sleepwalking because he did sleepwalk earlier in the film. And then they get to school the next day and there's a bunch of policemen there and turns out he had actually died the way that he remembered seeing it in his quote unquote dream. But 
this is where reality and like what is real and what is not starts to blur almost imperceptibly. Yeah, that's a big problem with this movie that I have. The filmmakers don't understand how Freddy works or I mean, it had been partially established in the first movie kind of how he worked and it just seemed like they didn't know that he's supposed to be in dreams most of the time and he's he's got a lot of influence on the outside world and in this one he's trying to take over the body of jesse more than he is like punishing children for you know the sins of their parents and that that sort of stuff that is kind of the freddy themes and the whole movie is not a very freddy movie mm-hmm. like there's some interesting parts and the special effects are great but it's not a it's not a nightmare on elm street movie in the traditional sense so after that first murder that actually took place he starts freaking out he wakes up in his sister's room he has a little sister and he doesn't want to cause harm to her so the next night his girlfriend or whatever is throwing a party and he goes to her and she's like "Ooh, smooshy smooshy in the cabana trying to get him to to calm down basically and so she starts smooching and they start making out and lying on the floor and there's a little bit of freddy transformation like his tongue turns into freddy's long gross tongue licking her and he freaks out doesn't want to become freddy so he leaves her and goes to his friend's house his guy friend this guy grady who he's got a very contentious relationship with um they're friends but they're also Frenemies. Frenemies, kind of. They um, get into a fight, a little bit of fisticuffs, and they just... Earlier in the movie. Uh, and then he tells them to shut up at lunch because he's freaking out about everything, and they're not on the best terms. I wouldn't call him a best friend, but he's a friend. He had just moved to the area. He goes to this guy's house, and he's like, I don't want to hurt my sister. I don't want to hurt Lisa, his girlfriend. You need to stay awake. Make sure I don't transform. Grady starts to go to sleep. Jesse is like, oh, it's happening again. And we see this awesome, like, Freddy head come out of his stomach. We Oh, before that, we see the... His arms start transforming. His arm, yeah. His, the claw gloves start coming out of his fingers. There you go. Thank you. And then you see an eyeball in his throat. It's really strange the way that he's taking over his body. Mm-hmm. Like, he's inside of his body, even though Jesse is... a much smaller stature than Freddy is. So Freddy comes out, kills Grady. Jesse looks in the mirror. That's a really cool shot of mm-hmm. him being Jesse talking to Freddy in the mirror because he sees Freddy instead of himself. And then he jumps out the window and goes back to the party and is just looking for anybody to help him. Lisa's like, oh my God, calm down. You're making it worse. Look at the the diary. And I think the diary is a really good device. Mm-hmm. But they don't really spend a lot of time explaining the answers. Like, they don't read the important stuff. And so she's like, look. She forces him to read the last page. And is like, you you give him power with your screams. Which, by the way, are pretty impressive screams by any gender. (laughs) And we'll drop into that a little bit with the documentary. Because they are quite high-pitched. But anyway, so she's like, just don't give him power. And then he transforms. Runs after her. Freddy's trying to kill her, but Jesse's kind of holding him back inside of him. So you you see this kind of struggle, this inner struggle in Freddy, because you're looking at Freddy. So then the everything is getting hotter. The the pool that the they're at a pool party that his, starts Lisa's boiling. Putting on. 
And they're like, can you turn the heat down? Things start catching on fire. Like, the hot dogs just start catching on fire and then exploding. And And then the the beers start to explode. Mm -hmm. There's some wacky chaos here. Yes. So then they hear her screams. All of them come to the door. Freddy jumps out and disappears when he breaks through the glass doors. And then they're like, oh, okay, it's over, it's over, it's over. And then it's not because he comes out of the bushes. Is that what happens? Like, uh, He popped out of like some sort of deck that they had there. He bursts up out of the deck. And so then he's terrorizing all of them and going... Slashing at, people left and right. Killing a couple of them because that's what happens at parties, right? And then... A couple uh, of people look like they might get boiled alive because the water also catches on fire. Right. Is chlorine flammable? Like, I would think that the water would... When you got Freddy magic dream powers, you could do what you want. Sure, sure. So anyway, things start going crazy. He bites her on the ankle, which isn't really important, but she bites back and kicks him in the face and gets away. And her father comes out with a shotgun and misses him twice. He turns to the terrorized crowds and says, You are all my children now. Really cool little scene. That's probably my favorite part of the movie. It's it's very neat looking uh, with the flames coming up behind him. It, it was very much like action movie I, just, I thought it was scene. cool. It's very iconic looking. The gunshots scare him off, even though they missed. And he walks through a hedge and just walks through it. And flames. And just, yeah, that section of hedge is just incinerated. So Lisa, not knowing to leave well enough alone, jumps <laughs> in her, her boyfriend's car, actually. Rides back to the factory, searching for him because she knows that Mark is in there. And... Gets scared away by some rats and starts and to run out weird, and then comes back. The dogs with human faces. Oh, God, yeah. The baby face dogs. Which yes. uh, it feels to me like there was a scene cut out that explained why he had dogs with people faces. Yes. It it seemed... Odd. It was just a incongruous. weird... Incongruous. Yeah. Like, it was not explained well at all. And Like so a lot a little, of this movie. Yeah. A little bit of a absurdism in there for sure. And so she... Is up in the rafters, and she starts to run away, but then comes back, because she's like, no, Mark needs me. Mark, right? <laughs> Wait, uh, No, Jesse. Sorry, he's played by Mark. So she's like, Jesse needs me, and so she goes and she talks to him, and Freddie is like, Jesse is dead, and he's no longer here, and she's like, I don't believe that, and then makes out with him, and... He, then he, like, bursts into flame, and then from the ashes arises Jesse, and they walk out. Wait, we forgot about how, oh, did you say the kiss part? The big, yeah. gross, nasty. Yeah, makes out, out with, with him. Making out with Freddy. Freddy. Nasty-ass Kruger. Yes. Sorry. Very, very nasty-ass. So anyway, it's like a few weeks after, and he's like, I can't believe I'm going back today or whatever, and he has bandages on his hand, and he's walking out of the house. And he gets on the bus, and I'm like, dude, what happened to your car? Did it finally break down? That's never explained. But he gets on the bus. She's there waiting for him in the in the bus with her best friend Carrie behind Carrie, her. Carrie, who'd been in the movie here and there, but unimportant character. Yeah. That's, yeah. And so she, he sits down beside her, and Carrie goes, that was a bitchin' party, huh? Or, like, that was a good party. Like, something, and then he's like, is the bus riding too fast? Because that was his initial nightmare. 
And they're like, no, 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 you need to sit down. This is, you know, and it, the bus stops. And he's like, okay, maybe I am just being paranoid. So he sits, sits back down. And she's like, just calm down. And Carrie rises up from her seat behind them. And a Freddy hand pops out of her chest. And then you see the bus riding off into the desert, which is... Kind of how it opened in the beginning. Yeah. So it ends where it began. And maybe it shouldn't have started in the first place. <laughs> so that's basically the movie. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Like I said earlier, this movie is made by people who don't understand the character. And it feels like they were just trying to rush something out. Having said that, Mark Patton does a really good job as Jesse. He makes some choices, but I, I don't think a lot of that can be put on him. I think I feel like the director, who didn't do a whole lot... I mean, he did a lot of things after this, but nothing really notable. He did the Generation X made-for-TV movie in the 90s. If you're a comic book fan, you'll recognize that. He's not a great director, and I feel like a lot of this falls on him, and a lot of the problems with the script, the writer, who... He, he mentioned later in an interview that they bring up during the documentary about how the movie was written as homophobic and... Yeah, this movie is pretty homophobic and also homoerotic. Like, it's pulling that double duty. You said duty. (laughs) (laughs) So he prefaced it by, because I, I wondered why the documentary existed, right? It's called Screen Queen, and the description on Shudder interested me, being that it is Pride Month, and people call it the gayest horror movie ever. And so I was like, huh. He goes, you've never seen it? And I said, no, I've never seen any of the Freddy movies. I've seen, like, parts of one. And he goes, well, we could do it for our 10th episode. I'm open to that. Like, let's do it. And then I watched it, and I just turned to him, and I was like, there was, huh? And, like, yeah, if you if you analyze it, there's definitely some gay undertones to it. I do agree with that. I do see those. But having never watched a Freddy movie, having the... I'm really bad at watching a movie with the filter of the time that it was made in. I'm watching it as a person. I'm consuming this product as I would consume it today. And whereas Jesse is not your typical toxic masculine jock, he is still a jock. He is more sensitive than other guys. He has that lovely scream. He has all of that. He's a more sensitive type. And I I get that. I think they even in reviews called him a sissy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get that because he is still a jock and he's still like he pals around with Grady. He doesn't make any weird contact with Grady, in my opinion. Grady's the one that pulls his pants down, pulls Jesse's pants down at the beginning, which is why they started fighting and all of that. You do get to see a nice bum there <laughs> as well. But you had explained that Freddy was, could basically be considered his urges mm-hmm. for other guys. That, that is His gay urges. I think that's a very strong subtext throughout the movie is that Freddy represents Jesse's homosexuality trying to emerge and him trying to fight it back. Even watching it with that layer on it, it didn't play that way to me. But that may just be because there's a lot more sensitive type 
straight males that are being Mm -hmm. portrayed in media today. And I came up with a list of them. The main character in Sex Education, a show on Netflix that I adore, but also makes me a little uncomfy because everybody is portrayed to be underage. The big brother in Stranger Things, the one who's a photographer. He's a straight male that is a sensitive type. Oh, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt in everything he's ever been (laughs) in, but mainly the 10 things I hate about you. He's the one that gets the girl in the end. He's straight. He's the tutor. He's the, you know, the nerd. And he gets the girl in the end as well. Ducky in Pretty in Pink. Like, there's all of these tropes that I, as a non-horror film connoisseur, These are the movies that I've watched. So I've seen the sensitive straight type a lot more often than I guess you see in horror movies. But I don't watch horror movies. A lot of those uh, characters that you named, I mean, there's like one or two from the 80s. And those characters also have overt sexual attraction to a female, which Jesse doesn't really portray in this movie. There's a girl who's interested in him. And he's around her, but he doesn't, it doesn't come off as he, for me at least, that he's ever actually attracted to her. When they start kind of making out, it might be because Freddy's there. It might be because he doesn't want to be there. And that's why he runs to Grady's house. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of subtext of when you, when he gets to the bar scene, that's, that's basically text. You know what I mean? With this. Well, yes. The gay bar with the. And also early 80s. Like S&M flair to it. The early 80s gay scene was very much part of the S&M culture as well. And we'll see that in some of the other horror movies we get to eventually. Like, there's a movie Nightbreed that I think has very strong gay subtext. Hellraiser. It's more S&M. There's not quite as much subtext in that one. But but they were both made by Clive Barker, an out gay man since the 80s. But him freaking out when he started making out with Lisa, Mm -hmm. I think could be interpreted by, oh, this is basically his puberty like this is his sexual awakening and he doesn't make out with grady he doesn't want to make out with grady like this there's never any overt interaction between him and another male now the coach on the other hand there was gay coming towards him like towards jesse from the coach i think but I, I never really saw Jesse as a gay character. I never really, I didn't make that connection. Okay. I do believe that there, are, there is subtext there. And if you analyze it even just a little bit, it's there. But my first impression while watching it is, oh, it's like a rom-com male in a horror film versus... This is a gay character, and this is the gayest horror movie ever made. <laughs> the documentary is called Scream Queen. It is a Shutter original, I believe, or at least they've got the rights, streaming rights for it. So to watch it, you need to have Shutter. Once again, $5 a month, totally worth it. Still not sponsored, Shutter. <laughs> and basically, it's about Mark Patton and his career, or really lack of career, after this movie came out. And how he kind of holds this grudge against the writer, because the writer kind of over the years has blamed... Mark Patton. Well, first of all, he said, no, I didn't write it as a gay movie. Right. No, there wasn't. There, a, there's no gay subtext. The and writer definitely switches sp- sp- his speaking narrative. Speaking out of both sides of his mouth on this. And I get, I, I'm not defending him. I get why he was doing it, though. The movie didn't fail financially, but it failed critically. People have, did not like this movie. It's still one of the lower rated of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. 
and it made ten times what it was cost, but I think they were hoping for more money, and that's why when they made the third sequel, they brought Wes Craven back. And I think the writer also changed his story when it became more acceptable to talk about gay themes, you know what I mean? Like, it's something he he said originally, oh, that wasn't there, that was all just the fact that the main actor was so gay, like... It, it just came off that way. And he never identified it, the main actor. He just said it's the casting that made it gay, mm-hmm. not the writing. And I don't agree with that. I, I, th- I think it's directing, writing, and like acting. I think it, it all culminated in this movie. And that's not a bad thing. I don't. I think this movie is important, but... I don't like the fact that it can be interpreted as homophobia. Yes. Uh, well, I mean... Or it's, homophobic. I think it's important be, to talk about its homophobic kind of response in the time period. In the like, you have to take it in context of the time period, which uh, I've already admitted I'm not good at. Right. Doing. It's it is a homophobic. There are homophobic themes, but because the way it's presented with a gay actor, and I, I don't think the he director was not an out gay actor. But though, he and wa- I think that is very important to. He was a Mention. he was a gay actor, and he you know his uh, what was it his agents were like we're not sure you can play straight and after this movie you're gonna do character part stuff because yeah you're a character actor because you can't play straight and I think the context of the the time period this was a way to talk about these themes and subjects with people who need to hear it without it raising too much alarm you know what I mean it's not a oh, it's okay to be gay, but there's a lot of, like, gay innuendo there. You know, there's a lot of male gaze uh, on a male, as opposed to where most movies you see the male gaze on a female. And I think that's why it was embraced so hard by the gay horror community, who have been treated really bad over the years. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they've had a very rough time over the years, and it's only recently, I feel like, that they've been... There's been one or two examples. Like, Clive Barker has always been pretty well-liked, but he was always kind of thought of as a weirdo, too, because his movies had a lot of sadomasochism in them and, and gay subtext. So, we begin the documentary with an interesting part that um, I found is it starts with his career prior to that. And he just happened to be cast in the Broadway production. First of all, his drama teacher encouraged him to leave, told him, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of this town. So he up and left. I don't know if this was prior to him graduating. It wasn't clear. He left in February. He did uh, say that because he gave himself five years to try and make it as an actor. And he opened on the last day of that five years. Mm -hmm. He opened on Broadway or off Broadway at that point it made its way onto Broadway come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean Jimmy Dean and for those of you who aren't familiar with this play I happen to be cast in a production of that at the community theater I volunteer at as soon as they mentioned it I was like oh that's where I know him from because the original cast had Cher it had Kathy Bates Kathy Bates it had all of them And it was a hugely successful production. It went on to Broadway. In the play, he plays the younger version of Joe, who later becomes Joanne. And he doesn't play the Joanne part. That part 
unfortunately, was given to a cisgendered woman. Karen Black. Karen Black. And I say unfortunately, she did a beautiful job with the piece. There's a movie out there that you can see with the original cast Mm -hmm. in it. It's a beautiful story, but it tells the tale of... A trans person. Before they had the language for it. Before they had the language for it. So there's a lot of language in the play that is problematic. And there is a push nowadays to cast a trans person in that role. And anyway, his connection to that play and my connection to that play, it it endeared me to him a little bit. But then he started talking about, I got commercials, I got this, I got that, I was making it, and I was on Broadway, and then I was on film, and then I got this part in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. His first lead role. And he realized in the middle of filming that he was the star of a gay horror movie. And the the writer denied it, and... He was not out at the time, so he was terrified because of the homophobia in Hollywood. And that was later confirmed by his agents telling him he would only get character roles because he couldn't play straight. And so he decided to leave. Round about this time, he realized that his lover was HIV positive. Therefore, he became sick as well. And so he went to Mexico and was kind of bedridden while he dealt with his illness. His lover at the time had, like they were broken up, but his past lover passed away from this AIDS epidemic, basically. In the 80s, if you can remember, there there was all of this AIDS phobia as well as this homophobia. And the AIDS epidemic kind of spurred on the homophobia. And... There's a lot of good history in it and a lot of personal stories to make it real because I knew about it, but even still hearing friends talk about friends who had passed away. And if your friend went on a trip and you didn't see them for a while, you just assumed that AIDS had gotten them. And just that heartbreaking high turnover rate of the gay community at that time really kind of broke my heart to hear personal stories from it. So that part about the documentary I liked. The part that I didn't like was it's not healthy to hold on to grudges. And because it was the 30th anniversary, Mark started going around to different horror conventions to sign and to do whatever. And there was one in Fort Lauderdale that basically everybody was going to be at. It was going to be a reunion and they had a panel and they had a kind of private talk back at the end of that where he confronted them and basically blamed everything on the writer. Conveniently so because the writer didn't show up to the Mm -hmm. convention. Everybody just kind of nodded their heads. Jack, the director of the film, was sitting there and he was just kind of nodding his head. And the following day, Jack sat him down after their little chat to catch up and whatnot, and basically told him to get over it. And I didn't like that aspect of it, but I do think Mark had pinned a lot on the writer when he should have been pointing fingers at both of them. Later on in the movie, in the documentary, we do get to see a conversation between him and the writer. And the writer points it out. That was not my place 
to tell you not to do that. That was Jack's place, and Jack didn't do that. So Jack never understood it to be a gay film, or if he did, he never admitted it. Mm -hmm. And the writer was like, I never told you to scream like a girl. It was not written in the script, scream like a girl. You did that on your own. And he has some pretty awesome screams in here. That's why it's called The Scream Queen. He has embraced that title now. But at the time, it ruined his career. He walked away from Hollywood because of the homophobia. He was terrified. And then he his health compounded that, being that he had AIDS. He back, had full-blown AIDS. Back about the scream, though, I actually really like the fact that he screams like that. I feel like it's a much more natural scream. Like when something absolutely horrific is happening. We talked about in A Quiet Place how when John Krasinski <laughs> does that yell... Or like he's screaming for the monster to come getting him. It sounds just so unnatural because he's trying to like pitch it down so he sounds manly and doesn't come off a too screechy. And I'm like, that that's not if giant monster aliens are going after my kids, I'd be screaming like a like a banshee. Like Yeah. I mean terror is terror. Terror doesn't have a gender. Mm-hmm. And so when you're terrified, you're going to scream. And I don't I hate the term scream like a girl. I hate anything like a girl. Throw like a girl and scream like a girl. Like I hate that. Break down gender roles, y'all. But it the choice to scream like he did, I think, was a good choice. Which is why I don't think Jack felt the need to go back and redirect that. But if you watch the making of Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller, the whole kitten caboodle, the awesomeness that is Thriller. Not the awesomeness that is Michael Jackson because no. he sucked. No, yeah. If you watch it... He's supposed to be screaming as he's transforming into this werewolf type of thing. And it's comical how Mickey Mouse it sounds because he's... He's He's got a high voice. He's he's got a high-pitched voice, yeah. But the director recognized that and pitched it down in post-editing. And I think Jack could have done that. I didn't mind the scream. I really enjoy the scream. Like, that. the scream is not what made this movie gay, period. Let's just get that out of the way. The dance scene. uh, Apparently he wasn't supposed to be dancing. He's supposed to be acting goofy according to the script. Like sticking pencils up his nose and stuff. And And he didn't want to stick pencils up his nose. Which I wouldn't either. Like that's That's Osha man. Osha would be like no you can't do that. Yeah that seems (laughs) that seems very uncomfortable to me. But it it was in the script that he kind of shut the drawer with drawer with his butt. And then there's this one scene where he has one of those like popper things and he does this kind of hip gyration i found that comical i really enjoyed that and i could see how a gay man watching this film would really enjoy that too if you catch my drift it's but I sexy without it's, being sexual it well, is well not, it's a little sexual but yeah it is not overtly gay is what i'm trying to say right this whole movie it's i there's a couple of scenes that i believe are Pretty overtly gay, but not on purpose. It's just people who didn't know what the gay scene was like or is like just putting something on the screen that they just didn't know what they were doing. Right. But it was written in the script that he went to a gay bar, like an S&M bar. Mm-hmm. He, he did put it in the script that the coach was a queer S&M person. Like he did put it in, like everything was in the script. The only thing that he really changed was I don't want to put pencils up my nose. (laughs) So what if I dance and nobody, everybody was cheering at the end of that scene, he said, and nothing, nobody told him like, 
don't do that. There was an instance where there's a scene between him and Freddy where Freddy's like, you have the body, I have the brain. And he peels back his skull cap thing and shows him his oozing brain, which is gross. Um, but it's in part of the dream sequence and he has the glove and he's kind of caressing him with the blades. Mm-hmm. The actor, Robert England, who plays Freddy, asked Mark, hey, is it cool if I put one of the blades in your mouth? And he goes, yeah, I can go with, go there with you. Like, this is, like, sure. And was just trying to be collaborative and open. And all of a sudden, from across the set, the makeup guy starts screaming, he needs makeup! And then comes over and kind of whispers to him, don't let him do that. It's going to look like you're blowing him. So it wasn't the director... It wasn't the writer, but his makeup artist had his back and was like, you really don't want to do this. But the fact that Robert England felt like that would be a good choice to make made it seem like all the other actors were in on this. Robert England totally knew what this movie was, if nobody else did. Yeah. Uh, And Mark realized it, I think he said halfway through filming or whatever, he realized what was going on. But Robert England, like, he, he knew what this was. Oh, the guy who plays Grady said, I knew on day one of auditions because it was in the lines that you're talking about a coach who goes to clear S&M bars mm-hmm. on the weekend. Like everybody was in on this, but it was denied, denied, denied. And then when it wasn't denied, the writer of the movie, Chaskin, mm-hmm. decided to take a couple interviews. And in one of the interviews, he said, this is the perfect movie to show at conversion camps, mm-hmm. gay conversion camps. And I was like, there is so much. Supposedly he was joking, but that doesn't make it yeah, right. He, he dismissed it as, oh, that was a joke. And Mark was like, you have to understand that not everybody gets your humor. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to find that funny. And it's actually harmful to make jokes like that. And it's harmful to me because... I get called the F word behind the screen of a computer every day. When they're showing, yeah, when they're showing people's reaction to the movie and how many times people use that word, like, it's really gross. And it's part of the reason I don't go to horror conventions all the time anymore, which watching the documentary, I was like, oh, I miss going to comic conventions, is because there's a lot of horror fans who are are really homophobic or racist or just jerks and they treat... This is like, oh, this is you just because you like horror films, that means you just get along with, you know, all this sort of other stuff. And no, like we need to be inclusive. That's what I've always said about the various things I'm into, punk rock, comic books, horror. I want everybody to love them like I do. And a lot of those communities try to shut themselves off and be gatekeepers to people who are different. And I'm like, the reason you're into these things is because you were different. You were different in some way. You were a nerd or you were fat or you were skinny or you were whatever. Let other people enjoy this stuff too. Don't be a hipster. I liked it first. You can, you can totally say I liked it first. That's fine. But I liked it first. Let me show you what I liked about it. That's true. I do like that aspect of it. After the discussion with Chaskin, Mark comes away with it because to his credit, Chaskin does say, look, I apologize Mm -hmm. for all of the harm it has caused you. I recognize its role in making you feel like you 
his it didn't it, have a career after this. It really messed up his career. Like, yeah, it just did. There, there was a sincerity to him when he was apologizing. They did hug at the beginning. I'm not sure if they hugged after, but Mark walked away with it. Was that was all I wanted? I wanted one of them to apologize. And, and the thing that he realized during that discussion was. Chaskin was pointing out, I never said scream like a girl. And he goes, yeah, but nobody told me any different. He goes, that wasn't my place. That was Jack's place. That was the the director's job. So then he started realizing that all of the stuff that he was angry about, the homophobia in Hollywood, the AIDS epidemic and the AIDS phobia that was coming out of this thing, the just the struggle from day to day, he used Chaskin as a focal point for all of his anger. And it seemed like he ended the conversation in a much healthier spot than when he began that conversation. And he does recognize that he held on to that grudge a little bit too long. But that conversation needed to happen. And Jack saying, you should just let this go, man. I think he was trying to discourage him from discovering that Jack was in the wrong too. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to be to blame. And walking away from this documentary, he is absolutely to blame. At least partially. As well as Chaskin. And all of the hurtful comments that were made and the jokes, quote unquote jokes, that were made about it being homophobic Mm -hmm. and all of that. But yeah, so Mark now has been going around the convention circuit and doing drag shows and... And as the horror community starts embracing those outsider views again, the the, the gay community or the you know disabled community or whoever, as they become more inclusive, it's become kind of a rallying point for a lot of people of a certain age who you know, gay or bisexual who grew up watching this movie and seeing something they, a little titillating, a little scary, a little, in a, in a way that they hadn't got to see something like that before. The drag queen, I think, is the one that said, we are scavengers of media. And whereas conservative parents wouldn't let you watch something overtly gay, they would allow maybe a Freddy a, movie. Maybe a horror movie every once in a while, you know? Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street? Oh, sure, it's just a horror movie. And you got your first taste of, oh, wow, okay, this is what it is. I don't think it has a great message, because he does end up with a girl, and Chaskin even... Was it Chaskin or one of the other members of the the cast and crew that said the basic point is all it takes is a good woman to make any gay men straight. And he ends up with the girl in the end, or does he? Because is it real or is it not? I don't understand why he's not in jail. Because he killed Grady. (laughs) It's a dream. But that's specific. No, it's not. It's a dream. I think. I don't know. What part is a dream? Him killing Grady or? No, him killing Grady happened, but him waking up and getting on the bus. It's another dream, is what I think. And I think he dies in that dream. I can't remember. They might actually answer that in Freddy vs. Jason. I know they make a reference to Jesse somewhere in there, but I'm not... I, it's been a while since I've seen that one, too. But the gay community has always had to scavenge the media for something that they could call theirs. And I'm so glad that they accept this and call this their own. There's a cult following behind this movie, even as... <laughs> <laughs> even as critiqued as it is. They love it Mm -hmm. and it's very campy like they have lots of like campy things about it 
And he's using this fame, Mark, now, he's using this fame. He, he honors that Scream Queen title. He has t-shirts. He uses it to bring awareness to the fact that he has HIV. Like, he's HIV positive, and he's living longer than anybody ever expected him to. It is completely manageable at this time. He's using it to be a gay activist. He's he's coming into his yeah, he, own he a little bit a, later than than what anybody would have wanted. He donates a large part of the money he makes from the convention circuit to the Trevor Project and other LGBT groups. I mean, I think he is definitely somebody I admire. And it's just sad that he had to deal with the homophobia. And he had to deal with the AIDS phobia. Even though a lot of people didn't know he went through his recovery process and he said I was lucky I got sick when the cocktail was around but then he had another health issue that pre- tuberculosis yeah. tuberculosis that prevented him from taking the cocktail for a year and then when he took it it almost killed him the AZT the old mm-hmm. uh, medicine the old cocktail, yeah. he really enjoyed using his name to support the gay community and then he's like Oh, yes. And also, he didn't want them to know right away that he had AIDS. So when he comes out as having AIDS to conventions, to people, and now in this documentary, he he wants you to know that you can't look at somebody and say, oh, they have AIDS. Oh, they have this. So I really enjoyed his journey to getting closure on this aspect of it. I really enjoy what he did in the aftermath. It took him a long time. It took us a long time. Like, it is so important to realize that 10 years ago was a completely different world than it is now. And 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this movie was made. 30 plus years. Just to think how far we've come. But also understanding there's so much further we could go and that we should go. I think that is the point of the documentary. And I enjoyed it. The documentary is really good. You should watch it. Like, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I like, don't I, think we should rank the documentary. I think we should just rank... Just the film? Just well, the Because I feel film. like the documentary makes the movie worth it because the movie is not great. There's some really great parts to it. The special so effects do you want to rank them as a double feature, like, together? I... I don't know. Let's talk about food while you okay. figure that out. The documentary, there's not a lot of food-related things. It's a documentary. But the movie... If you want to have a theme night, you need to get a large sheet cake, kind of a birthday cake thing that she has at the party, and then take four knives and slice it down and use red food gel to make it look like it's bleeding. And it, like, I think that'll be awesome. And exploding hot dogs. Exploding hot dogs, (laughs) sure. But also Cherry's Jubilee, because everything was on fire. So you need something (laughs) flambe-y. And we also have an Instagram set up. So if you want to see us make the theme food for this week's episode, check there. We're going to be posting it as we publish the episodes. episodes. What is our Instagram? Murder She Don't. No one? No, we didn't need a one on this one. Somebody stole Murder She Don't uh, Murder She Don't on Twitter, so we had to be Murder She Don't One. But so on Instagram, we are just Murder She Don't. So, Nightmare on Elm Street Two is not a well made movie. It's not well written. It's not well directed. But I think Mark Patton in the movie is really good. I think Robert England is always good. He's always bringing a he brings a level to these movies that as we get 
as we get further and we'll, we'll watch that them they eventually. don't deserve. Yeah, that some of them don't deserve, especially. I think he's a great actor for this sort of role. I don't want to rate, rate it too low because I know how loved it is by some people, but honestly, the movie by itself is probably a four. Not anything you need four to watch. For what, though? We haven't discussed that. Oh, yeah. Are we ranking them together or separate? I think I'm going to rank them together and separate. Okay. So. So. One to ten one exploding to hot ten dogs. Exploding hot dogs is the perfect thing. For <laughs> <laughs> or person face dogs exploding parakeets. Okay, so there's a scene. <laughs> we didn't talk about this because we kind of zoomed through it. But there's a scene where the birds, they have parakeets for some reason, are going crazy. And it's so hot in the house. And it's like 97 degrees according to the thermostat. And the two birds are going crazy. So they like take off the blanket because they were supposed to be going to sleep. And one of them had gone crazy and killed the other one, it looked like. I, yeah, one of the birds is dead at the bottom yeah. of the cage. And then the other one is just, like, squawking to get out. So they open it, and the bird is flying around, just dive-bombing the whole family. <laughs> They're hiding this behind... This tiny behind... two-ounce parakeet. <laughs> They're hiding behind furniture, and somebody goes and gets the broom and a newspaper, and they're trying to swat at it, and then all of a sudden, it explodes, catches fire, and then there's feathers. The green feathers just floating slowly just down. floating slowly down. And, like, there's no rhyme or reason to why, and I'm like, is this really happening? Is this a dream? Again, you don't know. It is imperceptible what is real and what is supposed to be, like, reality in this movie, and it is... I laughed. So exploding parakeets. We're doing exploding parakeets? Yes, we're doing exploding parakeets. One to ten exploding parakeets. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is four on its own. It's not a great movie. I think some of the people do the best they can. Mark Hatton does the best he can. The guy who plays the coach, who's been in a million things, does the best he can. But it's incompetently made. It was made in a rush. That script needed another few passes. They did not understand how Freddy works. They did not. There was not a lot of internal logic to the movie. It's it's not great. The great parts are great. The special effects are really good. Really neat special effects, except for the person face dogs. Those things are stupid looking. But like his transformation into Freddy in Grady's room looked really cool. Him bursting out of Jesse's stomach was really cool. The eye in the back of his mouth was very neat. But yeah, the movie by itself is not not great. So I'm giving it a four. But the documentary, I think. Is pretty good. It's it's a pretty well made documentary. I think everybody should watch it. I think I would rank the documentary by itself like an eight. I think the only problem I really had with it is it was kind of building up to this big. Uh, this is going to be the meeting between Mark and the writer, and and it felt kind of anticlimactic. That was the big climactic point, and it was not that climactic. The aftermath of that, when you see him start embracing this other scene, this like queer community inside the horror community great stuff really fun and exciting so i think documentary an eight movie a four but if you put them together it's an eight because you should watch this movie with this documentary like i feel like they go together really well makes you understand how it kind of ruined his career because you can see this movie is not that good but it's worth it worth watching it because you get further context for the the documentary so 
Absolutely. I think without watching the movie, the documentary is less impactful, mm-hmm. I think. If I just watched the documentary, I would not get what they were referencing mm-hmm. when they were talking about the screaming like a girl and all of the other scenes, the dance scene in particular, like all of the nuanced things that they talked about. You don't get that unless you have the movie to inform you. So even if it's been a while, I say rewatch the movie before mm-hmm. you go to the documentary but absolutely watch the documentary my rating is five exploding parakeets for the movie and for the documentary by itself i would rank it eight Mm -hmm. i would i would say eight almost a nine but we can't do halves apparently (laughs) so eight exploding parakeets and together i would say i would i would put it around a seven together because the movie is not that good. However, <laughs> from a non-horror movie aficionado perspective, <sighs> Freddy Krueger haunted my dreams because I didn't know what Freddy Krueger was. When I watched it, I was like, this is what I was afraid of? Like, what? <laughs> this is dumb. I don't like the aspect of not knowing if you're awake or if you are I think asleep. that's one of the biggest flaws of this movie is it doesn't yeah. have that internal logic. But, like, it is watchable. As a horror movie hater. Together with the documentary, like, it's just so much fun to watch. The, like, it was the documentary I really, really liked. It was really enjoyable. I, I agree. I If you're interested in that documentary at all as a horror movie hater, you can get through the movie to get through the documentary. And I do think it's worth it. However. Yeah. <laughs> I would, if you're just looking for a movie to watch as a horror hater, watch something else. Because this is not can that watchable. Can I point out, though? You ranked it higher than I did as I did. a movie by itself. Which... I did, because I, I, I don't know the mechanics of Freddy yet. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't... Okay. Like, I get that. Watching them out of order, this is going to inform... I reserve the right to come back and rank it lower once I watch <laughs> the other Freddy movies, okay? But Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, it's, it's a Middle five for rough. me, because, like, I don't have anything to compare it to. All I have to compare it to are the things that kind of filtered into my brain through osmosis while growing up which wasn't a lot because my whole family wasn't a horror horror film family we didn't really those are not the type of movies we watched but yeah five eight and seven together and four eight and eight together mm -hmm. i think the yeah watch them together it's just it's a lot of fun it's well worth your time so thanks for listening to our 10th episode. Boop, boop, milestone. Next week we will be watching Event Horizon. That was a request from somebody, so we'll be seeing that. She has no idea what she's in for. This is It's going to be a fun movie to see her reaction to. So if you want to give a request, go to our Twitter and tweet at us at MurderSheDon't1, the number one, and... We'll take that into consideration. Honestly, if you put a request on there, it's probably we're probably gonna figure out a way to watch the movie. So, so until then, you're, you're all, all my, my children, children now. now.